You know, the story is told of the day that the Pope was on his way to the United Nations building and he had an important address before the UN uh, to deliver. And unfortunately, his plane was late and he arrived late and so they had a chauffeur that was there and picked him up in the limousine and they started to go into the city and it was taking too long and the, the Pope was starting to get worried about, you know, being late and he said, hey, listen, you got to drive faster. And the chauffeur said, you know what, I can't drive any faster. If I get another ticket, I'm going to lose my license and I won't be able to drive. And that's how I make a living. And they're going back and forth. And so the Pope said, hey, you know what, I got a good idea. And he goes, what? He goes, pull over, I'll drive. He goes, with diplomatic immunity, I can do pretty much anything I want to do. And so he goes, okay, he jumps in, he starts to drive. He's hitting about 120 miles an hour trying to get into the city. Sure enough, he gets pulled over. The officer pulls him over, the window goes down, and he looks and he sees the Pope. And he didn't know what to do. He says, uh, hold on one here, just one second. He goes back to his car, and he gets on the radio and says, you know what, sir, I don't know what to do. So what do you mean? He goes, well, I, I've got somebody really big here, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So, well, who is it? Is it the mayor? He said, no, it's not the mayor. He said, was it the governor? He said, no, it's not the governor. He goes, is it the president? He goes, no, it's not the president. He says, well, who is it? He goes, I don't know, but whoever he is, the Pope's his chauffeur. You know, the point is that, you know, most of us have been guilty of jumping to conclusions, making certain assumptions, only to discover that we are way off base. Sometimes the end result is funny. Other times there are more serious ramifications. But today in our ongoing study through Luke's gospel, we come to a question that's asked of Jesus by an individual who was guilty of making a very wrong assumption. And the answer Jesus gave had to shock not only the person who asked the question, but certainly the entire audience who was listening. And the question that was asked is found in Luke chapter 13, which we'll look at in verse 23. The question is very simply this, Lord, are there just a few being saved? And it caused them to stop and not only think, but more importantly, to answer the question. Are there just a few who are being saved? You know, it so often was the case with Jesus when he was asked such speculative questions, he would turn those questions from one of general speculation to that of very specific, um, from a very specific point of view. You know, if you remember when the people came to him and said, you know what, kind of tell us why these people died, you know. Why did the people die at the hands of Pilate and this, you know, this, this uh, re rebellion and riot that had taken place? Why did they die? And, and then he went, they want to say, why did these people die when this tower fell on them? And, and Jesus said, you know what, rather than talk about speculation, which we're all really good at, he said, you know what, unless you repent, you too shall perish. And so in this particular case, we're going to see the same thing. You know, it was a question that's asked from the crowd, the audiences, are there just a few who are being saved? And Jesus, as he always does, turns it around in essence and asks the question, are you one of them? Are you one of those few who are being saved? And if you've got your Bibles open, Luke chapter 13, starting with verse 22, that will be the theme of this particular passage. And he was pressing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter by the narrow gate or the narrow door. For many, I tell you, seek to enter and will not be able. 
once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and, and, begin, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us, then he will answer and say to you, I don't know where you're from. Then you will begin to say, well, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught us in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I don't know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth there when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being cast out. And they will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south, and they shall recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. Just at that time, some Pharisees came, saying to him, Go and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem! the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you. I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you shall say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, before we look into Jesus' answer to the question regarding the fact are, are there are only a few who are being saved, there are a couple things that we must look into and have a better understanding. It's critical first and foremost to understand the question. You know, as we read it, we should naturally ask this, save from what? You know, we read through the Bible and sometimes we don't stop and think about the fact that, you know, you and I who are granted the knowledge of the mysteries of God have an understanding of spiritual things that the rest of the world doesn't comprehend. And in this particular day, as this question was being asked, the question was, are there only a few who are being saved? Well, to me, I would ask the question, safe from what? You know, I don't get it. I don't understand it. But in that particular culture, specifically the question that was asked in the audience that was there, see, the Jewish people understood clearly what many people in our culture don't even have a clue about, and that is this. They understood that God would judge one day the sins of man. They understood that God would come and judge the sins of the world. That God would send a Savior into the world to establish His kingdom. And at that time, the Savior would judge the sins of the people. That the wrath of God was coming. A day of judgment is ahead. They understood that. And so the question that was being asked is this, are there just a few who are going to be saved from the judgment or the wrath of God for sin? And what you know, we sometimes in our culture misunderstand is that there is a day that's coming when God will judge us for our sins. And they knew that, and they understood that. And the question was, are there only a few who will be saved from such a fate? You know, if you've got your Bibles, turn to uh, John chapter 3. You know, a passage that many of us know only because of familiarity with one specific verse as far as John 3.16. But I want to call your attention to the context of that passage for the purpose of helping us to understand what he's referring to. If you remember, in our passage in Luke 13... Jesus clearly warned those who were there that they needed to repent. He said, unless you repent, you too will perish. 
Well, it wasn't so much that you too will die for the wages of sin is death. We're all going to die. But there was something deeper in the context, and that was perish. What does it mean to perish before God? See, the term perish means not just to die physically, which we all will, but more importantly, to be separated from God for all of eternity. And the idea of perish is to be found in Scripture as we go through this. But in John 3, an example is on verse 14 and on, it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. For those who aren't familiar with that, back in the day, the Israelites were, were grumbling against God, and because of their complaining against God, God judged them for their rebellion and their sin. And he sent snakes into their midst to bite them, and, and in essence, to kill them for their rebellion. And the only cure or the remedy was, he told Moses, the only way these people will be saved is to do it exactly, save from what? Save from dying, this fate, is to do exactly what I tell you to do. Take a serpent, put it on a stick, hold it up in the air, and if people will look to that serpent on the stick, they will be healed. Now, you and I know, medically speaking, that makes no sense whatsoever. You know, there would be rationalization of, well, you know what, no, that's not going to work. You need to take them to the emergency room. You need to give them the anti-venom shots, whatever it was. But God says, look, if you want to be healed from these snake bites, you do exactly as I say to do. And they did. Jesus used this history to help them to understand, just like back in the days of Moses, when Moses held the serpent up on the stick, and those who did what God said to do looked up to the stick, the serpent on that stick, they were healed of the snake bite. He's saying, just like back in those days, the Son of Man will be lifted up. He'll be lifted up on the cross, and those who look up to him and believe in his death on the cross, he'll be raised into heaven. Those who look upon his death and his resurrection as sufficient for their sins will find forgiveness from God. And the world goes, but that doesn't make any sense. But see, our God has allowed us to understand who he is and basically says this, if you do things the way I say to do things, whether it makes sense to men or not, because my ways aren't your ways, my thoughts aren't your thoughts, how I do things are different than how everybody Everybody else in the world does things, and the only thing that matters is I'm God, no one else is. Hey! There you go. So it says, you do what I tell you to do the way I tell you to do it, and you know what? And if you choose wisely, you will not perish. Well, in this passage, he goes on to say that whoever believes may in him, speaking of Christ, have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will what? Will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world that first time he came, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God or the authority of Jesus Christ to forgive sins. And this is the judgment, that the light is come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to light lest his deeds be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light and his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. The very simple plan of God is this. He loves the world. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, in the world to die on the cross, lifted up on the cross, raised up into heaven. Those who look upon him for the forgiveness of their sins will be forgiven, and they will not perish. But, in contrast to perishing, have eternal life that's found in Christ. Now, the contrast of having eternal life 
is eternal death according to Scripture. And it's not the cessation of existence. It is to be separated from God for all of eternity in a place called the lake of fire or hell. And the basis of that judgment will be not only rejection of Jesus Christ as God's only hope or only Savior to the world, but the basis of that judgment will also be they will be found guilty because their deeds are evil. No matter how many people you meet that say, I'm a good person, God says, you know what, but you're not perfect. And all God will do that day of judgment when a person rejects Jesus Christ's death on the cross and the power of his resurrection as God's only way for the forgiveness of their sins, he will look into the book of their life and say, you know what, you are guilty before me and now be gone from me for all of eternity in the lake of fire or what we know as is hell. So the Bible says, instead of perishing, which is an, an existence that is an alert existence, a conscious understanding of the fact that we are separated from God, a conscious understanding of pain and suffering and all that goes along with it, he's saying in contrast to that, you either have a choice to believe God and take him as a word and trust in what he says, or you can say, no, I'll do it my way and suffer the consequences of that fatal decision. So when we go through this, we don't perish at physical death. There's a continual awareness and existence that's taught throughout Scripture, and we'll see that the second death is that of the lake of fire. And so what he's saying, in essence, is, you know what? As we go back to Luke chapter 13, now the question may make a little bit more sense, and that is this. Are there just a few people who are being saved from the consequences of their sin? Are there just a few people who are going to avoid the wrath of God for sin? Are there just a few people who are going to escape the judgment of God for evil doing? Are there only a few people? You know, another important note is that it was evident to all who heard Jesus preach that salvation will be restrictive in nature. See, Jesus did not preach this general, massive, all roads lead to heaven message. As long as you're sincere in what you believe, it really doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter who you worship as your God. It doesn't really make any difference. As long as you do your best, that's all that God requires. Jesus didn't preach that message. Jesus preached a very restrictive message, a very narrow message a very non-exclusive message. We preach, you know, we hear about tolerance so much in our society today. And the reality of it is it's just, a, it's nonsense. Because we have a society that will tolerate anything and everything but the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can believe what you want to believe, you can promote what you want to promote, but if you mention the name Jesus, only God can help us. Because the world, just man, you talk about, and if anything, it makes you even more aware of the fact there's only one name given to man under heaven by which men can be saved. There is no other name like Jesus. If you stop and think about it, even when people curse, they use the name of Jesus. I've never seen anybody in a job site or construction site when they hit their hand with a hammer go, Buddha. <laughs> don't hear it. Confucius this. You don't hear it. But Jesus, man, I hear Jesus all the time in the clubhouse, on the field. You hear it all the time, the name of Jesus. Why? Because there is no other name. There is nobody else like Jesus. Because of what he has done, he has been given a name above every other name. 
that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. And unfortunately, it will be for those the last thing that they do before they are separated in the second death, the eternal death, separated from God. It will be the last words that they ever utter before they are separated from God for all of eternity. See, they understood the exclusive nature of the message. See, it doesn't surprise a Jewish audience that only a few would be saved. Because here's what they believed. There were the Jews, and then there was everybody else. The Jews were few, everybody else was many. And so his question was, are there just a few of us being saved, and the rest are all going to hell? That was the question that he was asking. Now, there's two ways to look at the question. We don't really know exactly what motivated the question, the question could have been a very sincere, seek, tr- you know, truth-seeking question because what they had seen in their day is very simple, like we see so many times in our day, and there were a lot of people followed Jesus as long as there was something in it for them. When Jesus was healing diseases, when Z- Jesus was healing the multitudes, when Jesus was feeding the multitudes, man, they all followed him. Jesus, you're all right with me. You gave me what I want when I wanted it, so therefore I will follow you. They saw that multitudes of people came to Jesus, and he didn't turn anyone away. He healed them all of every disease and every infirmity and, and, you know, raised people from the dead. And then he began to feed the multitudes to demonstrate and to prove that he is who he claimed to be, the Savior of the world, the God of the universe. And so people followed him. But then what happened was when he started preaching truth, they didn't like it. They couldn't handle the truth. They didn't like the truth. Why? Because what was the truth? If anyone's going to come after me, he's got to deny himself. He's got to pick up his cross, which means he's going to suffer to follow me daily and come after me. If anyone's going to follow me, you know what's going to cause division in your household? It's going to separate fathers from sons and mothers from daughters, etc. There's going to be division in your household. Things aren't going to be rosy and peachy keen anymore because if you follow me, there will be divisiveness that will occur because of it. He said, don't think that I came to bring peace. He did to bring peace to those who trust in him. But don't think I came to bring peace on earth because there's going to be a price to pay if you choose to follow me. They all knew that. They understand that. You know, it's like, hey, you know what? Are you willing to drink this cup? Oh, yeah, we're willing to suffer for you. But he was, he was up front with them. He said, this is what you have in store for you. You still want to follow me? And I like the answer disciples gave at one critical point in their lives. And they said this, you know what? Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. See, God has promised us, people who have trusted in Jesus Christ, our destination is secure in Him. But He has never promised a smooth journey. And in our culture today, with this watered-down dose of Christian light, it's, just, it, it, it's not surprising that people will follow Jesus as long as there's something in it for them. But the moment there's a price to be paid for our faith, we say, no, I'm not interested anymore. I walk away. I don't like the obstacles, I don't like the pain, I don't like the suffering, I don't like the challenges, I don't like to, to, to lose a job because of it or have my finances impact because of it. See, they recognized and understood that, you know, th- th- that it was very restrictive. But the answer that he gave surprised everybody, including the person that asked the question. It wasn't so much that the gospel was very narrow. What surprised them was who's getting in and how they're getting in. And that's what it was like, whoa, whoa. It had to send them reeling on their, on their you know, back feet. It was like, whoa, what? 
So, you know, as we look at this, more likely the question was just to confirm what they had assumed. Tell everybody we're in and they're out. And that's not what happened. So with that in mind, instead of a general theological question, are there just a few who are being saved from the judgment or the wrath of God for sin? Few are being saved. And are you one of them? That was the question. Ask yourself the question. A highly personal question. If there's only a few being saved, am I one of them? Am I one of them? First thing that we'll look at, and by the way, so you don't get nervous, this is a two-part, two-part message. <laughs> I know some of you are already kind of going down through. You didn't get the one yet. So just to relieve some of your anxiety. The first thing that we see is that he's saying, in order to be one of the few who will be saved from the judgment and the wrath of God for sin, you must repent of your sins. That is a message that I have mentioned over and over and over again, and I will mention it over and over and over again because it is consistent throughout Scripture. As Jesus said in the first part of this chapter, unless you repent, you too shall perish. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. And again, like so many terms, repentance is a word that people aren't familiar with. What does it mean to repent? I want to show you an example in the book of Acts, if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 17. That'll tie in both themes of what I'm saying. The thought of not only repentance is essential in order to avoid the wrath or the judgment of God, but also the fact that there is the wrath and judgment of God to come. And in Acts chapter 17, starting with verse 22, we see that Paul is in the city of Athens. And he addresses the men of Athens in verse 22, and he says, I observe that you are religious in all respects. So all i got to do is look around and see everywhere I look. You're, you're worshiping some kind of God everywhere I turn. He says, for while I was passing through and examining all the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So what they were doing was they were making up all these gods. We're going to worship this god, that god, and the other god. And then one thing that they had going for them that was accurate was that just in case we missed one, we'll cover the bases with to the unknown god. You know, we don't want to get any god. You know, if there's a god out there, we don't want to get him angry. And, and so, you know, we got this handle on these, but, you know, there's, if there's another one. And so Paul uses that brilliantly to say, you know, the unknown god, the one that you thought you missed, oh, you did miss. And let me tell you who he is. And so it says, the God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives uh, to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your poets have said, for we are also his offspring. 
being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image that's formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. And why should we repent? Because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Why should we repent? The word repent means to have a change of heart and mind. It means to turn from the direction that we are currently living to the direction that is now, instead of running from God, we are to turn to God. We are to turn back to Him and seek His forgiveness and throw ourselves upon His mercy. We are to trust that what He says is true. The only way that you and I will find forgiveness is to believe that Jesus died on the cross and He rose again from the dead. Repentance is to have a change of heart and mind about who we think we are, about who Jesus is, about our own self-ascribed goodness, and to realize there's nothing good in any one of us, and unless we turn and have a change of mind about that, we will perish in our sins. He's saying, turn, repent, everywhere. The message to the world is this, repent, turn from sin and turn to God, and you say, why should I do that? Because if you don't, there is a day that's coming when Jesus Christ, the appointed judge, will judge you for your sins and throw you into the lake of fire or a place called hell for your rejection of his gift and your own sinful life will indict you before God and you will be found guilty for all of eternity. I tell you what, that's pretty good motivation to repent. If we truly understand and we truly recognize what God is saying is truthful, is honest, we would turn from sin quickly. See, that's the message. Now, as we go through this, what's interesting about it is, if you go back to Luke chapter 13, there are several things that we're going to cover today. The first thing is that you'll see that there is a prerequisite that Jesus gives for repentance. He's saying that we are to strive to enter the narrow door or the narrow gate. The prerequisite is that we are to strive or struggle. It involves effort on our part. The word strive or make every effort, the verb here suggests a labor and struggle and the effort to get through the narrow door. The verb is used of other context, in other contexts of an athlete in training, to strive hard, to, to, uh, to discipline yourself, to be dedicated, to, to basically struggle and, and put effort into making sure. And what he's saying is this, if the, if the gate is narrow and only a few are being saved, make every effort in the world to know whether you are one of the few or not. To strive and to struggle as an athlete strives or struggles to be as good as they can be in, 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 the, in that given sport in which they're involved. To put that type of effort and discipline and determination and, and to recognize and understand that there are many obstacles that will keep us from entering that narrow gate. The greatest obstacle is right here within us, our own sinfulness, our own pride that says, I don't need God, I'll do it the way I want to do it. It doesn't have to be narrow. And all the world comes along and says, yes, we too agree. We do not like the exclusivity of Christianity. We don't like the narrow way. We don't like the narrow door. We don't like the narrow path. We don't like the fact that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. We will come up with our own belief system, and we'll get a whole bunch of people to buy into it, because the bottom line is this. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. We are our greatest obstacle to enter into the kingdom of God. Then there's the worries of the world. We get so busy in life, we don't even have time to think about spiritual things. 
Every time I'm asked to speak in a memorial service or a funeral, you know, it's a great opportunity to be able to talk to people about something they don't want to think about or talk about, and that is mortality. Yet we all sit here knowing we're terminal. We all sit here knowing we're going to die. We all sit here knowing one day that this physical life is coming to an end, and yet we're so busy living life to ever think about death. Jesus said the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, you know, getting caught up in the world system, keeps us from focusing on the most important question every one of us should ask about ourselves, and that is this. If there's only a few who are going to heaven, God, am I one of them? Because what I'm learning about life is this. I can live for 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, and it is a speck against the backdrop of eternity. And I'm going to be dead a lot longer, whatever that means, and I need to find out. All i got to do is walk through a cemetery and look at the dates that are on there and see there are people that, are, that have been dead longer than I've been alive. Where are they? What happens to us? We need to ask that question. There's no more important question than that. And he's saying you need to strive. You need to strive to make sure that you are one of the few. And now to make sure that nobody takes this out of context, let me just give this clarification. We are not saved by effort from the wrath of God, but we shall not believe without effort. Just as we are not saved by works, trying to do good things, but you know what? We're not saved if we're not doing good things. Because when God gets a hold of a human life and, and, and causes us to be born again and we're new creatures in Christ, we should be doing the things that God has called us to do, walking in a manner worthy of our calling, living a life of righteous living, right living before God compared to wrong living before God. So don't misunderstand that you know somehow it's all about our effort because it's not. It's by grace we're saved through faith, trusting what God says. But at the same time, I'm, I'm dealing with this, this paradox, what seemingly is a paradox, and that's this. Jesus said, you know what? strive, agonize over whether or not you're one of the few who are entering the kingdom of God. I see people that agonize over their careers. I see athletes who agonize over playing time. They strive to be excellent at what they do. I see people all around me who agonize over, you know, you know, passing a test so they can get in the college that they want or getting the degree that they're trying to pursue. I see people agonize and strive over investments and finances and, and over diets and, and exercise and physical appearance. You know, they strive to be the best they can be to try to make whatever they have left look better than it has or can or will or should even. And, and so it just gets crazy. You know, they strive to save money to buy a house, you know, and, or, or, you know, or, or, or all these things, and, or, or about politics and elections, and, and on and on it goes. They strive and they agonize over all these things, and yet the irony of all of it is they don't give a single thought to eternity. What? What are we thinking? See, Jesus' point is simple. In light of what is at stake... You are either going to go to heaven or you are going to go to hell. And in light of the finality of eternity, we cannot strive too much to get through the narrow door. It must be sought with all we are and all we have. We must get into the word of God. Lord, am I on the right path? Have I made the right decision? Does your spirit bear witness with my spirit that I'm truly a child of God? Do I have confidence and assurance 
of my relationship with you or do I still have doubts and questions that I don't have answers for yet? And, you know, frankly, to be honest, if I died today, some would say, I don't really know. I hope, you hope, wishful thinking. I'm thinking if you ever want to be certain about anything in your life, it's about where you're going to be after you die because there's no do-overs. It's appointed for man to die once, then comes judgment. Period. Pray. God, show me the way. God, give me peace. God, make sure I'm not deceived. God, make sure I'm not confused. Help me. Agonize over it. Jesus at one point said, don't work or strive for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed a seal of approval. Then they asked him and said, what must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is simple, it's this, believe in the one he has sent. Believe in the one he has sent. Have you believed in the one he has sent, Jesus Christ, and him alone for the forgiveness of your sins? See, have you turned from sin and turned to God and trusted in Christ? See, the prerequisite is that, you know what, we need to agonize over this. We need to spend a lot more time praying about and agonizing over, you know what, am I truly in Christ? Or am I just a person who is in church? Have I come to realize God's forgiveness? Do I understand how narrow that gate really is? And then he goes on and he talks about the peril of waiting too long to repent. Notice what he said, strive to enter by the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. To illustrate the danger of waiting too long, notice he uses in verse 25 a common occurrence of the day, a dinner party. It says, once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside knocking the door saying, Lord, open up to us. And he will answer and say to you, I don't know where you are from. Could be a dinner party. And, and, and it, or it could be the end of the evening. And because of the danger of living in that culture, once you were in, the doors were shut, and that's how you were protected. But what he was saying is there's a peril that is waiting too long to repent from sin. There's a peril of hearing what I'm saying on a regular basis and never acting upon it. There's a peril of hearing the message of God's love and forgiveness and extension of his invitation to accept Christ as your Savior and, and, and saying, you know what, I'm not interested right now. I'll get back to it later. I'm too busy agonizing over all these other things. And what he is very clearly saying here is that many or a majority of his listeners were complacent to his message of repentance. And Jesus warned that just like at this dinner party or end of the evening, when the head of the household gets up and shuts the door, guess what? Invitation's over. The invitation's over. When they had the opportunity to respond to the invitation, they weren't interested. You know, and as I was reading through this, I couldn't help but think about back in the days of Noah. God commissioned Noah to build an ark. God said, while you're building the ark, preach repentance to this generation. For 120 years, he told people they needed to repent because the judgment of God was coming for sin. And you know what they did to him? Laughed at him. 
mocked him, said, you know what? I don't like your narrow-mindedness. All roads lead to heaven. In fact, we got the majority. There's only eight of you, all of us. And God said, you, keep re- you just keep preaching repentance. And then a day came when God said, okay, time to get in the boat. And let me tell you something. You know who closed the door? God. The Bible says that God shut the door. God closed the door. They closed their hearts to God, and God said, then I will close the door to you. There's a peril that comes with rejecting the invitation of God's forgiveness in Christ. And Jesus clearly teaches this, and the warning is as applicable today as to his audience then. It is appointed for man to die once, then comes judgment. That's why 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, Today is the day of salvation. If God is convicting you of sin and your need for Jesus Christ as your Savior, God says, then you better accept the invitation today because you don't know whether the door will be closed tomorrow. See, you don't know and I don't know what that day appointed for us is. You know, as I've been going through this, you know, physical thing with cancer, I just, you know, I laugh at people who say, you know, you got this much time to live or whatever. And I had a one, one person tell me, say, well, you know, not to me, but to, to them, they were told, well, you got six months to three years to live. I said, man, tell them to put it in writing. <laughs> if you can get them to guarantee that, that's a good deal because the Bible teaches me that, you know what, we're not to be anxious for tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own, and it's appointed for us to die once. Then comes judgment, and if somebody can guarantee you're going to live three more years, wow, take them up on it, and then your estate can sue them after you're gone. You know, it's like, you know, it's just ridiculous how, how, how deceived that we are. The Bible clearly teaches of the peril of waiting too long, having heard, you know, hearts that are hard. You know, and I was thinking about this whole idea of hard hearts. You know, there, there's nothing that will cause earwax quicker than a hard heart. I don't know how it works. It's a physiological thing. Stop and think about it. If you have a hard heart, you're going to end up with earwax. And what earwax does is it drowns out the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life. You will not hear God's invitation any longer. If your heart is hard to God, then there's a point where God says, then I'll just seal over your hard heart. You don't think so? Go read about Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a man that hardened his heart to God, and God said, fine, you want nothing to do with me? I want nothing to do with you, and he hardened his heart. There was no time left to repent, even though he was still alive physically. Now, you know, other people, you know, disagree and say, well, you know what, you have an opportunity as long as you're alive. But I also read in Scripture that, you know what, there's a danger or peril of rejecting God's forgiveness and His invitation in Christ. And you may still be alive, but you know what, you may never hear the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit again if you wait too long to ask for forgiveness. See, we go through this, and, and, and you know, there was a couple of assumptions that they made. The first assumption is that, you know, they, they made this assumption that they had a relationship with God. I want you to notice this. What was their answer when he said, I don't know you? They said, well, yeah, you do. Verse 26, well, you, remember we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. Remember, we knew, well, well, you, knew, you know us. We, you, you came to our house, and we were at that dinner party, and we all hung out together, and you know, blah, blah, blah. And you hear this kind of stuff all the time out of somebody that, you know, always, people are always asking, you know, can you get this autograph, that autograph, whatever, and, and just so, so you know, no. And... Uh, <laughs> But, but the other side of it is, is that, you know, I, I meet with guys and I say, yeah, you know, this lady hands me this thing and writes, you know, write down uh, to my best friend, Timmy. 
It's like, I don't know Timmy, my best friend Timmy. He writes, Timmy, God bless. You know, and if he's going to sign it and give it to him, that's what he'll do. But he's not going to lie and say, to my best friend Timmy. We go way back to grade school together. I'm 33, you're six, you know. <laughs> it's like, what does that mean to my best friend? But he says, no, I, you know, to Timmy, God bless, you know, or whatever, throw a verse on there. But, but it's kind of like, see, we make this assumption that we know people who don't know us. And they made the same assumption. But, Lord, you know us. We ate with you. You taught on our streets. We were part of the crowd. We were out in the multitude. You know us. Is there, no, I don't. I don't know you. Exposure to Jesus doesn't bring about forgiveness of sin. Caiaphas would be in heaven. Herod would be in heaven. Every person that was exposed to Jesus would be in heaven if just exposure to Jesus was enough. Coming to church and hearing what I'm saying, coming to church and hearing the message, coming to church and, and, and reading and seeing you know, and listening to God's truth isn't going to get you into heaven. The only thing that will get you to heaven is responding to the message, which is this. Repent. Turn from sin. Turn to God. Trust in Jesus Christ as the only answer to the problem of sin in your life his death on the cross, the power of his resurrection, and receive him as Lord and Savior. And if you do, the Bible says, you will become children of God to those who believe in his authority to forgive your sins. That's it. That's the message. But they didn't like that. Well, we, we hung out with you. We were with you. People in church today say, but Lord, we, I, I've had communion. I've been baptized, confirmed. Got married in the church. I go to church every week. You know me. I'm there all the time. And he said, you know what? I don't know you. Because you have never repented of your sin. You have trusted in church membership. You have trusted in external rituals. You have trusted in your heritage. Your dad's a pastor. Your grandfather's a pastor. Your mother and father are doing this and that in the church. You know, they're on the worship team, whatever it is. And so you think you're in because of them, and you're not. All the Jews ran around saying, hey, we're in because we're Jews. We're, we're children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, we're in. And Paul said, let me tell you something about heritage. If anyone could have boasted of heritage, it was him in Philippians 3. He said, but you know what? Let me tell you about heritage. I could have boasted. Tribe of Benjamin, eighth-day circumcised, this, that, and the other thing. I had all the external things, but you know what? I counted all rubbish, trash, garbage for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord and the power of his resurrection. So I lay all that behind. I lay all the nonsense of the world behind me and I believe what the word of God has to say. There is no other way to heaven. There is no other way to be saved from the wrath or the judgment of God. It is very exclusive in nature and God, that is your only way and so therefore I trust you, believe you as the Israelites believed Moses when he held up the stick, that, that, the snake that was on the stick, so we believe Jesus Christ was raised on the cross on our behalf and he was raised again from the dead. That's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what's so wonderful about it is it's all about him and and not about us. We trust him. We may be preachers. I mean, do you realize that there are people who are preachers? They're pastors who Jesus one day will say, I never knew you. Where did you come from? So many Sunday school teachers, people on worship teams, he's going to say, I never knew you. But we sang praises to you. 
I preached truth. I taught your kids. But you never repented of sin. You never trusted in Christ. Don't be deceived. That's why the road is broad that leads to destruction. That's why there's only few who will go into that narrow, constrictive gate. The gate has an idea of a turnstile. If you've ever gone to a stadium and there's masses of people who are trying to get into the stadium, one thing that you'll learn is that you only go through the turnstile one at a time. One at a time. And you can't get through the turnstile without dropping a whole bunch of stuff in order to do so. See, and that's the message. That's what he's telling us. That's what he's clearly saying. And we need to see that and not miss that. He also goes on and talks about punishment. There's a sorrow that leads under repentance. Are you broken for your sin? Do you understand the grave situation that you're in? Do you realize that when you die that you're going to hell without godly intervention? Do you really understand that? Because there's a peril to rejecting that invitation. Those standing outside the door were needlessly confused. The clarity of God's word is pristine. To be one of the few, we must repent immediately upon conviction, having agonized over our sins and our need for forgiveness and trust in him. Outward contact with Jesus means nothing. Only inward reception is everything. There is no bargaining with God. There are no deals to be made. It is his way or the highway to hell. And, he, and the evidence is in this passage where you'll notice the punishment. He says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth there. Where? In hell, as people who have rejected Christ In this case, the Jews see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. There is a constant awareness, departure from God's presence, that second death, weeping, there will be sorrow. In gnashing of teeth, there will be anger. It's it's a picture of rage. People in hell will not only be sorrowful for their condition, but they will see the the blessings that they missed out on and there will be rage and there will be anger and there will be gnashing of teeth and there will be just that bitterness and resentment and, and all that goes along with it. There will also be an eternity of regret for the opportunity that was there that was past. They will see Just as Lazarus and and Abraham and the rich man in in Abraham's bosom, that rich man looked across that great chasm and he saw Lazarus and he said, Father Abraham, just let Lazarus dip his finger in some cold water and bring it to me just to touch my tongue with it because I am in constant pain and agony. And above all of that, I see that what you said was true and I rejected that invitation of forgiveness. Give me another chance. And that's what the man said, and Jesus said, you know what, even if somebody comes back from hell, no one will believe a thing that you said, because you haven't believed the truthfulness of God's word. Who's going to believe a person who may have, in the history of their life, maybe not always been honest? But if you don't believe God, you won't believe a person who comes back from hell to warn you that, hey, listen, everything that he's saying is true. Everything Jesus said is true. Everything the word of God says is true. You better act upon it while you still can. Hell is a place of punishment. 
There are those who today say, hey, you know what? Well, hey, look, you don't know where you came from, and after you're dead, you're gone. They, they teach and preach annihilation. You know, no big deal. And if it was annihilation, that'd be wonderful. You know what? It'd be the end of our existence. Eat, drink, and be merry, and for tomorrow we die is what Paul said. If what the gospel isn't true, then who cares because we no longer exist. But the gospel is true. And it will not be a place where you won't have any awareness of what's going on. Hell is a place where you will have a very acute awareness of your suffering, an acute awareness of your regret of not having accepted the invitation of forgiveness, an acute awareness that you've spent a whole bunch of time on your earth agonizing over things that were temporal and never gave any consideration to that which was eternal. There will be an acute awareness of it, and there will be sorrow, and there will be gnashing of teeth when you're there, and you will see all the blessings God had for you, and you missed out on them. Why do I share this? Not just for the person who has never accepted the invitation of Christ, but I share this truth for all of us who have come to be forgiven by His mercy and His grace that you and I have a sense of urgency in sharing the only message that will save people from this type of faith. The complacency of, well, you know what? Hey, I just mind my own business. There's no such thing as minding your own business. We are here to be minding the business of God. And God's business is to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's business is to go out into the world having now understanding the secrets of the mysteries and the knowledge of God that you and I have. God's business is for you and I to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and the outermost parts of the world. God's purpose, His plan, His business is to use you and I, God's redeemed to share this truth with a world that is lost and going to hell. Unless you repent, you too will perish. There is a day coming where Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead. Have you repented of your sins? Have you trusted in Christ? Or are you deceived into believing that membership in church and exposure to Jesus and listening to the Word or watching a video or whatever else is going on around us is somehow a substitute for a broken and contrite heart that God will never despise? See, now notice the shock here and the surprise of all of this is that the people who will be among the few had to be a tremendous insult to this particular Jewish audience. And in verse 29, and they will come from east and west and north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. What? See, salvation is very narrow, but it's a lot broader than the Jewish audience thought it was. They thought it was just for Jews. And now what do we learn from Scripture? We've learned very clearly that the invitation is for what? The entire world, for everybody. Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, black and white, young and old. God's invitation is to God so love the world in its entirety. And he is patient. But there's a day his patience runs out. For those of us with children, maybe you can relate where you would warn your kids over and over again, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. If you do that, this is what will happen. And they continue to do it, do it, do it, do it. And then all of a sudden you just go, swift hand of justice coming down on your backside. And then you go, whoa, 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 what was that all for? What was that for? You know, what was that for? I mean, I was like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. If you do it, this is going to happen, it's going to happen. And then you finally do it. And then they go, oh, that, oh, that caught me off guard. <laughs> really? Oh, why is that? You know, you might have employees that are like that. You warn them, warn them, warn them, warn them, warn them. Finally, one day you call them in and say, you know what? We're no longer in need of your services, uh, so we're going to let you go. What? That came from left field. 
Well, wait a minute, you're like the people that were outside of the ark watching Noah build it for 120 years, listening to them to preach repentance. Unless you repent, you're going to be judged by God. The door was shut, the rain started to come, and they all went, well, that caught us off guard. <laughs> really? Why? Because they weren't paying attention. And so what God says is, hey, look at the people now. The invitation is open to everybody. Come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. To everybody. And the principle is very simple. The first will be last. And the last will be first. But there is no way you and I can come to the, to the foot of the cross without a humble and broken heart. See, we don't come on our terms. We have nothing to offer. We are hopelessly lost on the road to hell. Unless we believe upon him, Jesus Christ whom God has sent. The question started out, are there just a few being saved? And the most important question in redirect is, yes, and are you one of them? And are you one of them? Are you? Let's pray. Father, thank you. We thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for the depth of your love and your mercy and your grace. We thank you for the narrow gate, the door, which Jesus said is him. We thank you for Jesus Christ, his suffering on the cross in our place, his death, for without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins. We thank you for his resurrection, that he is alive today and offering eternal life to all who trust in him. Father, my prayer, my great hope, my greatest fear as a pastor is that there are those who are here or listening who have mistaken exposure to Jesus for trust in him. Father, may they humble themselves as we all must to come to you recognizing our need for forgiveness. May we throw ourselves upon your mercy, repentance, forgive me for my sins. And I believe upon him, Jesus Christ and him alone for the forgiveness of my sins. I believe that he died on the cross. I believe that he rose again from the dead. I believe that he is alive today and wants to come into my life and create in me a new heart. He stands at the door and knocks. And if I would open my heart to him, the Bible says that he will come in and be my Lord and be my God. Father, I thank you for the day that I trusted in Jesus Christ as my Savior. How you drew me to yourself. How I agonized and struggled over the question of what would happen to me if I ever died and when I did. And I thank you revealed truth to me so that I could come to faith in Jesus Christ. I thank you that more important than me knowing you is that you know me and you have called me by name. I thank you that all the Father has given you, you in no way cast out. You will never lose one of us. And there is nothing that will ever separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. We thank you. We praise you. And I pray for a sense of urgency for your people to recognize the window of opportunity, the window of invitation maybe drawing to a close on many of those in our lives, our family, our friends, our co-workers, our teammates, our neighbors. 
and that we have the knowledge of the mysteries of God. We have the map that you have given us to share with them. God, may we always sense that burden to do so. We praise you that the results are in your hands and not in ours, that you only call us to be obedient to share your word with those around us, and that none of us could ever save anyone, but it's you alone who saves and you alone who are worthy of our praise. In Christ's name, amen.